All right, so we are going through 1 Corinthians, and we're in chapter 9 today. Um, and I think it'd be most helpful to just give you a quick overview of where we're going today. Um, this passage that we're going to go through is kind of broken up into two parts. In the first part, Paul is going to argue for the right of those who work for the gospel, like himself, to make a living from the gospel. But then he's going to quickly shift and say that he refuses to take this right or make use of this right, at least with the Corinthians, in order to not put any obstacle in the way of the gospel. Okay? So he's going to make this argument for this right for those who dedicate their time to proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming Christ, making disciples, planting, leading churches, whatever that looks like, to make a living from that, to receive some material support from that. But then he's going to say, but I refuse to make use of this right in this case with you so as to not make use, so as to not hinder the gospel in any way. And this gives us the opportunity to kind of think through some of this, think through issues of um, giving support, material support to missionaries, pastors, churches, and so on. But on the other hand, other hand, how to do this in a way that supports rather than hinders and doesn't put any obstacle in the way of the gospel. The priority is that the gospel goes, would go forward, and how can we use our resources, our money to either help that, but how might that become a hindrance at times? So that's where we're going. We'll start in verse 1. Paul writes, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. So some of you may recall uh, from earlier in this letter that there were those among the Corinthian believers who didn't think much of Paul. Um, in verse 3 here, we'll see that there are some who are examining him, testing him, trying him, judging him. Even though he had first proclaimed the gospel to the Corinthians, he had planted this church, he had dedicated a, a, a year and a half of his ministry to them, he is having nonetheless to defend himself. And specifically, he's defending his apostleship. Now, what does this mean? Um, well, the word apostle has a couple overlapping meanings in scripture. There's a, very, there's a very specific narrow meaning that has to do with the 12 apostles of Jesus plus a few others. Um, it's evident that Paul was thought to be an apostle in this sense. But then there is a broader view that an apostle is simply one who is sent out. That's what the word literally means. One who is sent out uh, to proclaim the gospel and establish churches, perhaps in areas where there has not yet been that work. Either way, some amongst the, amongst the Corinthians doubted Paul being an apostle, perhaps in either, either sense. They didn't think he had any authority among them, any right to speak to them, um, any claim to them. As we saw in the first few chapters, uh, some of the Corinthians favored more impressive and flashy teachers, which Paul was not. And in fact, 
There was another difference between Paul and these more flashy, impressive teachers of, this, of that day, uh, these orators and philosophers who would go around. Um, they would usually receive material support. They would perhaps have wealthy benefactors. In various ways, they would receive material support for their skill in, in speaking and thinking. They were professionals, you could say. They're professional speakers and thinkers, and they would gain a lot of notoriety and wealth for this. But Paul, at least in Corinth, refused to take any support from them. And this led them to question the legitimacy of his ministry. It didn't seem professional. I mean, how good can something be that's free, right? Why aren't, why aren't you accepting money? Why aren't you demanding money for what you do? And so Paul is in this awkward spot of having to defend his ministry, but not really in a way just to defend himself, but really to defend the gospel. And he will do this to begin with by defending his right and the right of all who proclaim the gospel or work for the gospel to receive material support for their work. He, he, will, he will argue that I have a right to receive this. So do all who work for the gospel. So we'll work through this. Verse 3. We're going to read the bulk of the chapter here. Verse 3. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? And then Paul's going to give four different arguments for this right to receive support for the work of ministry. First, an argument from common practice, or just common sense. Not a lot of common sense there. <laughs> Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Then an argument from the Old Testament law. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Then an argument from the Old Testament temple. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. And then finally, an argument from the teaching of Jesus himself. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Now, this last one is likely a reference to Jesus' teaching in Matthew 10, where he sends out the twelve to proclaim the kingdom of heaven and to, to heal, and he tells them, acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff for the laborer deserves his food, for the laborer deserves his food. And the big idea here 
is that those who work deserve to reap material support for their work, and that this includes those whose work is proclaiming the gospel, making disciples, planting and leading churches, those who are giving their time to this. Now, before getting into this, I want to note that in the five and a half years we've been a church, I don't think I've ever done a sermon on giving or tithing. At most, maybe a couple paragraphs here or there as it's come up in the text. Uh, we preach through the books of the Bible, as you know, and we deal with issues as they're presented to us. So the reason we're here on this topic today is because it is in 1 Corinthians as we're going through First uh, Corinthians. This is not, oh, it's Sunday, so we need to talk about giving. If you are new to the church, please know that this is not a regular occurrence. We don't go out of our way to talk about this. And our main concern is not your financial support. Our main concern is that you hear the gospel and respond to the gospel and are built up in the gospel, as the later part of this text will show. It is our concern to preach and teach the whole counsel of God, including passages like this. And we believe that all Scripture is profitable for us. So let's unpack this a little bit. First, what does it mean that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel? And in what sense is this a right? Right? It's clear that this is a right that can be made use of, even pursued in various ways, but certainly cannot be demanded, right? Like, it's my right that you support me in doing this because this is what I want to do. That, that's not the case. A, a minister or a missionary is deserving of his wages, but is certainly not in a position to demand such. If the opportunity presents itself, they make, may make use of this right, and this will look different in different contexts, right? Some Ministers or missionaries or gospel workers will be able to receive full-time support from those they minister to. Some will need to raise support from outside sources to be able to support their work, as we know Paul did. Some will need to work with their own hands to be able to continue to minister, as Paul did as well. The reality is, various factors, the size of the church, the, the location of the church, the means of the church all impact what sort of material support a gospel worker can receive. And sometimes even, as in here, a church may be financially able to support a minister, but that minister may decide to not receive such support for various reasons. But still, the overall point here is that a pastor, missionary, or other gospel worker is free to and deserving of some material support from their work. Or in the case of most missionaries, free to, to, work, to, to gain outside support to continue doing their work. And the examples, at least some of the examples given here, imply that it would be harsh to insist, to, or that is to make it a rule, that those who give themselves to this kind of work can never draw any benefit from that work. Most other kinds of work necessarily result in, I mean, the various jobs that we do result in some material support and payment and the ability to make a living, and those dedicated to gospel work ought to receive some as well. Now, just 
personally, thinking through this, I can attest to the benefits of being able to give full-time or close to full-time work to a church. I mean, if you think through the role of a pastor, so we believe that pastors are shepherds, and shepherds care for people and take time with people, and this takes time. A pastor is a teacher, tasked with studying and teaching God's Word, and this takes time if it's going to be done well. A pastor is also an overseer who oversees the ministry of the church, doesn't do all the ministry of the church, but equips the church for the work of ministry, and this can take time as well. Uh, None of this requires full-time work. A pastor doesn't need to work full-time for a church, but it does benefit from it. If I may say so without assuming or even speaking specifically of my role, a pastor, a church will generally benefit from a pastor or group of pastors being able to commit a good amount of time to the work of pastoring. I have a a pastor friend who's preached here before who's recently had to go back to working full-time outside of the church, and he's happy to do this, um, to continue to ministry, kind of like Paul here, but honestly, there are are some aspects of pastoring that are going to be have to go by the wayside, at least for a time, um, that are not going to be done in the same way. He cannot give the same time and attention to the church that he used to. I'm really thankful that in the five and a half years we've been a church and as we've planted, we've, we've had several other churches support us. We've had the, the NAB, North American Baptist Association that we're part of, support us. And this has done a few things. This has allowed me to work full time through, through even the planting phase of this church. But it's also taken some of the pressure off of we have to grow and just focusing on numerical growth or financial growth or sustainability or whatever. It's allowed us to focus on ministry, on discipleship, on proclaiming the gospel, and not have to worry about financial sustainability. And over the last five and a half years, God has provided wonderfully. We've never been in need. We've never been unable to pay our bills. Um, As our outside support has phased out, the support of this church has, has compensated, and we've been... We haven't drawn any outside support for a couple years now. So we thank God for that. Like, that wasn't guaranteed. There was no, like, plan that we, I mean, we kind of wrote out a vision of here's how we hope things go, but you can't plan for those things, you know. We didn't plan for each and every one of you to, to show up when you did. God does those things. And he's provided. And he's provided through many of you. There's also implications here for missionaries and how we think about missions and church planting. Um, missionaries and church planters typically go, typically go into areas where the, there is a need for the gospel and a need for the church, but not the means to support that work. And so they, like Paul did on occasion, need other churches and other individuals to support them so that they can present the gospel. Um, we support a few missionaries as a church, and through this, we have the opportunity to be a part of the gospel going forth in various parts of the world. Um, I reached out to the few missionaries that we support and just asked for them to, to share a little bit about 
the work they do in advancing the gospel. So I just want to share with you a couple snippets. Um, Pete and Cheryl Williamson are uh, missionaries, ministers in Yakima, who are involved with a ministry called Great Commandments Ministry that some of you have gone through. They do uh, uh, four-month discipleship programs uh, for students, um, and a couple of you have gone through that. Uh, Pete said that the program, um, through the program, uh, some are on a path to, to working in, in various ministry positions, but more than that, many are equipped to simply, simply follow God through the ordinary vocations of family, working a job, being a good neighbor, and being part of a local church. And I can attest, having seen several students go through and come out of this program, that they are better equipped to live faithfully and fruitfully for God. Um, it is a really good program. Uh, Justin and Addison Vaughn, many of you know, were with us for a couple of years before we got to send them out to uh, Palau in Micronesia. Um, Justin wrote back, I am able to transport people, so Justin is a pilot, transport people to and from Angar, which is one of the smaller outer islands in Palau. By doing this, I am able to build relationships with the locals as well as leading Bible studies on the island. I've been able to assist in building a meeting place for the Bible studies and church services on Sundays. Some of our more consistent passengers spend time ministering on the island as well as translating the Bible into Palawan. I've also had the opportunity to help meet physical needs to the people here by providing medical evacuation flights from the island of Anguar free of charge. Um, his wife Addison also helps lead Bible studies on the island of Anguar as well as teaching Sunday school at their church. And they stress that by having their support met, it has allowed them to be fully present and to serve in these ministry opportunities without having to worry about finances. Yeah. Lastly, many of you got to meet Josh and Amber Harrington when they were here this last year on sabbatical. They were with us for about a year. Um, they serve with Wycliffe Bible Translators in Papua, Indonesia. Um, Josh wrote, he says, Pap Papua contains about 270 different language groups. And it takes a team of people about 10 years to start, from, to, from start to finish, uh, from learning one of these interior languages to presenting them with the New Testament. There's also a need for people to teach literacy so that they can access this word on their own and not rely only on a handful of people to, to, to read to them. The interior of Papua still lacks a modern transportation infrastructure and this church movement in Papua has relied on aviation, so Josh is a pilot and aviation mechanic, to overcome the geographical barriers that keep these people groups isolated. Aviation is a very hazardous mode of transportation that takes a huge commitment of resources to repeatedly provide safe transportation over an extended period of time. It's difficult to scale up and down a flight program to meet the rapidly changing ministry environment in Papua. At some point in the future, the infrastructure in Papua will Papua will catch up and safe and reliable modes of transportation will become available and our transportation ministry will no longer be needed in Papua. Right now we are serving the interior Papuan church that can't afford to pay for a flight program to service their communities and churches. A flight program in Papua takes a huge commitment of financial and personal resources and right now the western church is able to provide the required resources. We and our sending churches are tied together with the church in Papua the more the church is tied together, the more opportunities we have to love one another and demonstrate Christ's love to the glory of God. Yeah. 
So again, as, as we partner with these ministries, we have the opportunity to be a part of God's work, not just here, but around the world. Um, if our means increase, we will continue to prioritize such things, um, as well as seeing that we have enough pastoral support here in our local church. Um, I think one of the implications of, of what we're seeing here is that of all the things that a church could put money towards, the Bible seems to make a case that putting money towards those who are working in ministry of the gospel is a good thing, you know. There are lots of things money's can, churches can spend money on, buildings, different things, and there's, there's, there's benefits in, in other things as well. But supporting those who are working for the gospel has value. Briefly, what does all this mean for tithing and giving? Uh, there is no command to give 10% to a church. That was a Old Testament law and actually was a lot higher than 10%. There was various tithes that added up to something like 23%. Um, in the New Testament, there's no command to give a certain percent. However, Jesus and the New Testament authors have a lot to say about money and giving, right? Just a couple things. We are told to be generous and ready to share. We're told, told to be aware of and be careful about the love of money. We're told to view all that we have, including wealth and the ability to gain wealth and our jobs as gifts from God and to view ourselves as stewards of what God gives us. It's not ours. We are told to give cheerfully, not under compulsion, but willingly, 2 Corinthians 9. We are told to give as able. So this will look different for, for everyone. For some, financial giving will be easy, perhaps. For others, it will, will not. It will look different for everyone. And I don't say any of this to try to twist your arm to give or to give more. The hope is that your heart and mind and affections and priorities would merely be awake to the word and work of God and that you would give in light of that. And not just that in what you give, but in how and why you do it. That it would be an act of worship as you were able. Now, lest we think that financial sustainability or prosperity is the goal, we need to move on. Our goal as a church is not merely to sustain ourselves financially. The goal of missionaries is not merely to keep up their support. There is a much greater purpose at hand. And Paul gets into that in the final verses. Verse, uh, let me read verse 12 again, where he's already kind of hinted at this. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Jump down to verse 15. I have not made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure such provision. So Paul's not arguing here about this right in order to get them to support him. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. Um, we don't know fully why he thought receiving support from them would be a hindrance to the gospel. We know that Paul received support from other churches for his ministry in Corinth. We know that he worked as a tent maker while he was there, helped, helped support himself. So it's not that Paul was against receiving support for his work. He just insisted on not receiving it from the Corinthians, as it may have made them less receptive to the gospel. 
Um, one explanation for this, perhaps in receiving support from them, he would have simply been lumped in with all of these traveling philosophers and debaters, and the message of the gospel would have been seen as just another product to be peddled, just another idea out there, a source of income for someone. And in, in being able to offer it for free, Paul was able to make clear that this is a different kind of message. This isn't something just to earn a living. This is not a product. He was compelled by God to proclaim the gospel message as this utterly unique news, the best news the world has ever received, whether or not there was anything in it for him. And we see this line of thinking in the last couple verses. Verse 15, I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, which is the case, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. So Paul's under no compulsion, or Paul is under compulsion to preach the gospel, and so he cannot boast in that. He's gonna, he will and must do it whether or not there's any anything in it for him. Verse 18, what then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as to not make full use of my right in the gospel. In other words, Paul's boast, his reward, is being able to offer the gospel free of charge so as to remove any possible obstacles for it. Which is to say, his boast and reward is in the very freeness and worth of the gospel message itself. It is not a product to be peddled. It is not a source of income. It's not something of limited supply. It's not only for some people, but not for others. If you get into ministry or missions for the money, get out. The gospel is something that needs to go out and be heard. The church is something that needs to be built up, whether or not a pastor can be supported or not, whether or not there's any financial gain to it or not. Paul will say a few verses later, I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some, and I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessing. The point is not that we all have to follow Paul's example in this. The point is not that every minister, missionary, church, or ministry needs to refuse support from those who they minister to. Uh, Paul has just made the case that there is a right. There is a right to receive such support, and Jesus himself speaks to this. However, there is a larger universal principle here. We should be willing to do whatever necessary, including refusing financial support, material support, to remove any hindrances to the gospel going forward and growing. That's the big idea, that the gospel needs to go forward, and it is worth going forward whether or not there's anything in it for us. That's the priority. And if financial support 
material support works toward that cause, then we give. In this, we are like the other churches that are supporting Paul in Corinth, believing in this work. Money can be used to support the cause of the gospel, advance the gospel. We, we support missionaries. We pay pastors' salaries. We have church buildings that are visible to the community, and we are able to bless the community. We have various community groups that meet in here. And yet, if receiving or asking for support will in any way turn people away from the gospel, then we follow Paul's example and refuse support. We, one way that we might do this is we, we don't make ministry and missions decisions based on whether or not they will make us any money. We don't disciple people and care for only those who can give to the church. And this might sound obvious, but we live in a world where everything is about, and everyone is about selling you something. A world that is all about commerce and profit and wealth. We need to be very clear that we are not a business. We are not here to make money. We are not here to keep the lights on, to be self-sufficient, to fill the pews, to pay the bills. We can do all of those things and from the outside look like we are surviving or thriving and still fail as a church. We can be a false church and do all of those things. As pastors, as leaders, as those who in various ways are tasked with teaching or proclaiming the word of God, we need to remember that the word of God is not a means to making a living. It is much more than that. It is not a product to be peddled. We're not trying to tell, sell you something. We want you to receive and be built up in the gospel, which has already been fully paid for by Jesus in his blood. Woe to us, we can say with Paul, if we stop proclaiming the gospel. Woe to us if we make the gospel dependent on what it gives us in return. As members of this church, you are not consumers. You are not investors in a business. You are partners together in the gospel. Yes, there is a need for material support, in this work, just like human human body has a need for food, but the body is not all about food, and we are not all about just sustaining ourselves. We should never settle into maintenance mode, just keeping the lights on, keeping the pews filled. We need to keep our eyes on the prize, proclaiming the goodness and grace and glory of God, of calling people to respond, to turn, to find life and salvation in Jesus, to discipling one another in, up into faith and maturity and stability and perseverance. You might remember the old, uh, not too old, but the MasterCard commercials. There are some things in life that money cannot buy. For everything else, there's MasterCard. Well, the gospel is one of those things that money cannot buy. 
And yet, it is the most costly, most precious, most valuable thing that there is. And not just because of the benefits that it gives us, but because of what it actually costs to secure it. It costs the body and blood of Jesus, of God coming into the world in the person of Jesus, giving himself for us, dying for our sins, so that we might live now and to, into eternity in relationship with him. Loving him, trusting him, rejoicing in him, obeying him, worshiping him. The, the cost has been paid for in the body and blood of Jesus. We don't deserve it. We didn't earn it. We can't pay him back for it. But it does change us to live for him. It is the free gift of God. So let's remember that, cling to that, and let's celebrate that now as we take communion. Let's pray.